star of wonder, star of night, star of royal, beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, lead us to thy perfect light. No doubt most of you, if not many of you, recognize that those words from the sweet little carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Now, anyone who has a seminary degree knows that you're not supposed to mention this carol before Christmas Day. We're supposed to wait until, the choir knows, they're laughing back there. No, we're supposed to wait until Christmas Day itself before we start to sing that, that carol. In fact, in many church traditions, including this one, that carol is, not, is often not sung until the season of Epiphany begins. The, the word Epiphany comes from a Greek word epiphano, which means to shine light upon. It reminds us of the star, the star of wonder, the star followed by the three kings who weren't kings, by the way, they were astrologers. And there probably weren't three, there might have been five or 17, we don't know, there were three gifts. But whoever they were, they're following this star, and it's that star that brings light and, and hope to a world in darkness. It's a beautiful carol for a beautiful season. But I'm beginning with it today because I'm, I'm fascinated by by the light that comes from stars and the way this light, both literally and metaphorically, can guide us and bring hope to our lives. Just like those ancient astrologers who read the sky and looked for signs in the stars above, we too can look for the light and look for hope in that single candle flickering against the darkness. Think about this. On Christmas Eve, the sanctuary will be completely darkened there'll be but a single light burning, a single candle burning, a single light shining in the darkness of that space, and that will be enough. That will be enough to spread the light throughout the sanctuary as we sing together the beautiful carol, Silent Night, Holy Night. I'm just fascinated by the way these stars work and what they, what they remind us of and how they illuminate our lives. I'm also fascinated by the idea that the light can help us to prepare for the celebration of Christ's birth. You know, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus. I may be saying that incorrectly in case you're a Latin scholar, you can tell me later. But the, the word Adventus means arriving or coming. The advent of the empire, of the emperor, was a, was a story of the, of the city gathering together in celebration of the empire's arrival, which was coming soon. And so there would be an adventus, an advent, a, a preparation. And what would they do? Well, they would proclaim to each other, prepare the way. Sound familiar? They would line their streets and their homes with fresh branches of greenery. In the windows of their, of their residences, in the streets as well, there would be lights shining in the darkness. All of these would be part of their preparation for the arrival of the emperor. Not only that, there would be shouts of praise and acclamation upon his arrival. If you read Luke chapter two, you can kind of see an outline there of what is a typical proclamation for the arrival of the emperor. Now Luke has changed it and adapted it for his own, his own purposes but it's fascinating to see that this idea is 2,000 years old. Prepare our homes, prepare our hearts, prepare our lives, put candles in the, in the windows, line them with greenery. It all very much reminds us of our own preparation for the arrival of the Christ child who will be bathed in the light of that star of wonder, a symbol of hope, of light shining in the darkness. 
light is an important image in the Bible. I just quoted something from John chapter one. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Just a single light is enough to overcome the darkness. In fact, another translation of that verse, it's from John chapter one that I found earlier this week, says that the light does not, that the dark does not understand the light. Isn't that fascinating? That darkness doesn't understand light. Light is found throughout the pages of the Bible. The the light of the stars are often mentioned in, in numerous and glorious and beautiful ways. Have you ever gone outside on a dark night away from the city lights to look at the skies? I recall a time I was in South Africa on a mission trip. We'd spent a couple of days in East London preparing ourselves for the work that we were going to be doing in a very remote village, two or three hours drive away from our mission station in the city of East London. We got out to this village where we were gonna build, build chicken coops along with the, with the villagers there and partnering with the churches in, in that beautiful part of the country. But there was no electricity, no power of any kind, no running water, it was quite remote and, and, and quite, for us, at least us Westerners, quite difficult to adapt to. But that first night, my roommate and I, Bill, were staying in a small hut, a hut that was owned by a woman and her adult son. They'd gone to bed, treated us well, given us a little tea for the, for the evening, but we couldn't sleep. Jet lag was still, take, was still kind of monitoring our sleep and messing it up as, as it were. Bill first went outside, then I followed him. As I followed him, I said, boy, that jet lag is really messing me up. This is really hard to sleep. He said, shh, look, he said, look, look. And I looked at the sky. It was the most amazing magic carpet of brilliant light that I'd ever seen. There was something mysterious about it, something magical about it, something wonderful about what we were looking at. In addition to that, we really couldn't understand, recognize any of the stars or the constellations. We were on the bottom of the world, on the southern, in the southern hemisphere, looking through the heart of the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Overwhelming. We just stood there in quiet and in awe, the beauty of creation. The Bible uses stars and light as images of hope and shalom and peace. In Genesis chapter one, it begins, in the beginning, the earth was void and covered in darkness, and God said, let there be light. Now you need to know, Genesis 1 is not a science textbook. It's not meant to explain how the world was created in, in six 24-hour days. Anything you may have heard from uh, other, other theological voices about that, they're completely wrong. It's not a science book. It's not a textbook at all. It's something that's, that's meant to be used in worship. It's poetic liturgy, as it were. 500 years before the time of Christ, one of those those old Hebrew poet theologians looked at the skies, looked at the world and said, truly God is the one who began with light. Let there be light. And there was. It's not science. And yet, I'm remembering my friend, Dr. Bob Roper, 
who when I met him, he was a retired professor from Georgia Tech University in Atlanta, Georgia. I preached a sermon on Genesis 1 on a particular Sunday there in Atlanta when I was serving as a pastor at Sandy Springs Christian Church. And Bob came up to me afterwards out in the narthex with a cup of coffee and he said, I enjoyed your sermon and I agree, Genesis 1 is not a science textbook, but anytime a professor says the word but, you know a lesson is about to come. He said, but it's fascinating to me that that poet, that ancient theologian, whoever he was, maybe it was Moses, began with light. Because without light, there's nothing. We'll, there's nothing that you see right now that is created. Without light, there is no life. He said the, the Big Bang is basically, essentially, an explosion of light. Did he know, Glenn, he asked me? Did he know that, that old theologian, did he know somehow, intuitively, that it was light that was needed to begin the creation of all that we see? Did he know somehow? I wonder about these things, Bob says. Bob was a, Bob was a, 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 a rocket science scientist, as, as it were, PhDs in a variety of science, scientific studies and, and such. He'd been recruited by NASA to come out to the United States to help with the Apollo moon mission. Uh, Bob had suffered from polio as a child, lost the use of his legs from below his waist, and yet he would tell you that it was the loss of his legs that allowed him to go to the stars he was a tennis champion as a child, groomed for the Olympic, groomed for the, the, the pro tennis tour, and yet when the disease came, it shifted his glance toward the skies. And I could still hear his voice saying to me, did he know that ancient poet, did he know somehow, we're, we're intuitively drawn, are we not, to see the light, to the source of the light. That's what Isaiah was doing when he ended his text, the one that was read this morning with, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He's reflecting back to that same understanding of light in Genesis chapter one. What he wants the people to hear, what he wants us to hear is, is from the beginning of creation when there was balance and order in the world, when shalom truly ruled the day, where everyone and everything was safe, where everyone and everything had more than enough, more than enough to survive. Isaiah is placing this before us as a way of helping us see the way the world should run as a call and a reminder that we are called indeed to live with hope for this singular reason. Let's remind ourselves of his words. Put them up on the screen. God shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Stuart, leave those words there for a moment on the screen. It's a beautiful text. Filled with hope and promise of turning weapons of war into implements for farm tools, for bringing food to the world. And yet, it raises some questions, does it not? These words are 2,500 years old. When will it come true? When will it be? Oh, we've, we've done some things symbolically here in this church. The, the work done by our community justice ministries has been amazing. They had a gar Guns to Gardens event here. 31 guns were turned in. They'll be turned into art to remind us that war is to be no more. But still, we hear words like this and we wonder, why are there still hungry people? 
Why in the United States of America, the richest, most economically powerful country the world has ever seen, are there people right now who are waking up hungry, who will go to bed hungry? Oh yes, we can do all we can. We want to serve every hungry person we possibly can, but let's ask the harder question, why are they hungry? In this rich land, why are they hungry? Why does war seem to dominate our perspective? Why does war seem to dominate our front pages? Why does violence seem to rule the land? Why? Now I know, I know, we're getting ready for Christmas. And it's, it's true in every church I've served and every community I've been around during Christmas, we don't want to deal with hard questions. We don't want to deal with serious things. It's too difficult. It's too tough. Let's not face that right now. Let's just sing. Let's, can we just sing some happy Christmas carols and have a nice eight-minute sermon that's all happy and, and all that? Dream on for an eight-minute sermon. Can we, can we have that sort of a thing? It's just that's what we want, isn't it? Even the culture seems to know this, seems to understand this. How many of you have seen the television show or remember the television show MASH? Just raise your hand. Many of you have. If if you're too young to have seen it or know about it, just Google MASH. In fact, Google the top 10 episodes of MASH and take some time to watch through it. It's an amazing, powerful comedy that really deals with very serious issues. It's an anti-war show if there ever was one. Today I'm remembering my, my favorite episode of all time. It took place on Christmas day. There's a ceasefire that's been broken. And soon, as you know the story, a MASH unit is a, is a medical surgical a hospital. As soon as the, the ceasefire is broken, the, the helicopters suddenly start bringing in these boys who've been injured and wounded in, in the battle. And I use the word boys intentionally, not disrespectfully. Too many of the boys who've died in our wars are teenagers. Too many. Too many. These boys, these soldiers, are coming in in various states of, of, of injuries and, and wounds. There's one in particular who's severely wounded. There's no way they think he's going to survive. But Hawkeye, remember Hawkeye Pierce, the character played by Alan Alda? He's determined to save this boy. He's on the table there. He's doing everything he can. He gets a couple of nurses to help him. A couple other surgeons come over to, to work with him. Even Father Mulcahy, the kindly chaplain, uh, who's a part of this MASH unit, he comes over to, to be there at the bedside of, this, of these doctors as they're working hard on this young boy's life. They've got to save his life. It's Christmas Day. We can't let him die on Christmas Day. But as the day turns into night, it becomes obvious he's not going to survive. No matter what they do, he's not going to make it. And at 11.45 p.m. on Christmas night, the boy dies. Someone in the group says, Christmas Day will forever remind his parents of the day he died. And then Father Mulcahy, the chaplain, declares Christmas is a day of birth. Christmas is a day of life. It's not a day of death. And with that simple decoration against the darkness of night, Hawkeye Pierce, the surgeon, walks over to the clock that is on the wall and he moves the second hand from 11.45 to 12.15 a.m. December 26th. Will they falsify a record? Yes. Because Christmas, Father Mulcahy repeats, is a day of life. 
We get it, our culture gets it. We want Christmas to be a day that we celebrate life, that we celebrate the birth of love made real in the person of, of Jesus the Christ. We, we understand all of that. And yet, even if we sing nothing but happy Christmas carols and have nothing but eight minute simple little sermons for the rest of the season, the world won't let us forget. It won't let us forget. Sarah named them in her, in her prayer this morning. There's still too much violence in our world. People going about ordinary, everyday celebrations, tasks, events have had their days interrupted with violence. A gay bar in Colorado Springs of all places designated as a safe space for our LGBTQ friends erupts in violence. Night shift workers gathering to get ready for the shift change to take their assignments for Bob to take aisles one through five and Susie to take aisles six through 10. And now here's the rest of all the assignments. Suddenly out of nowhere, this ordinary everyday, nothing of a day becomes violent and ugly. The University of Virginia football team returning back from a, uh, a field trip, a field trip to design to, to create camaraderie and, and teamwork and all the rest interrupted with violence. Vladimir Putin, who's every bit as a, much of a, a despot hungry for power as King Herod was in Jesus' day, continues to push this senseless, useless, evil war. Hard questions? We can't turn away. I read two theologians this week. I don't know that they read each other's work. They're contemporary theologians who've written in just the last couple of years writing about Isaiah 2. Both of them use the word absurd. His promises in light of what's happening in our world today seem absurd. And yet, the light continues to shine. Maybe Fred Craddock can help us understand this. Think of the story of Jesus. We tell it from cross, from crib to cross. Jesus lived from crib to cross, but we reflect on his life from cross to crib. It is the cross and the ultimate day of, of resurrection, Easter Sunday, that reminds us of the Victory of love over death, of love over violence, of God refusing to use violence as a way of doing what God wants to do in the world. Jesus lives from crib to cross, but we tell the story from cross to crib to open our eyes, to open our minds, to see that indeed hope can be made real. The star of wonder can give us hope in the darkest of times, in the worst of times. There was a man named Pastor Delp who served a church in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. He was arrested and thrown into prison because he protested against, he criticized against the Nazi regime. And because of that, he was imprisoned. In December of 1944, one of the darkest times in one of the darkest moments in the history of our world, that pastor wrote a note to his congregation. It was smuggled out of prison to his people where they heard it read to them on a Sunday morning. He reminded them, in the grayness of these days, let us not give in to despair. 
Let us become messengers of hope. Let us be the ones who shout with the angels that it is here, the day has come, the celebration has begun, the darkness has been given over to light. It's a star of wonder. It's a star of perfect light. It's a star that shines in the darkness. Yes, we will celebrate on Christmas Eve. Yes, we will sing with great joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Hark the herald angels sing, and we will then light one candle at the end of that service. A singular candle as the lights come down to remind us there's not enough darkness in the entire universe to cover the light of a single candle, of a single star. Amen.